It's time for Dodger baseball. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! There it goes! See ya! The sports department at WFUV and the history behind it are a story largely untold. That is, until now. The voices that have shaped the student-run station for the last seven decades dive into their time at Rose Hill. This is the Off the Air Podcast, the legacy of WFUV Sports. Welcome back to another episode of Off the Air, the legacy of WFUV Sports. I'm Tom Saiello. I'm joined by Michael Calamari. Michael, we have a really fun and jam-packed episode coming up shortly it's a it's a full-on storytelling episode a lot of experiences shared in this one by former New York Knicks vice president of public relations John Cirillo and FEV alumni he has so many different experiences in the world of sports and it was it was a lot of fun to talk to him yeah I mean we had an absolutely great time talking someone who has had so many different experiences like you mentioned not only was he a WFV graduate, he had the ability to broadcast some games at WFV and with Fordham University, but he also transitioned into public relations. He worked at Nick's PR, and he also started Cirillo World. So he has so much different experience, and I think we learned a lot from both his life, his experiences in the sports industry, but also his time at Fordham when we were able to talk to him. Yeah, and I, the one story that really stuck to me, and obviously John tells it much better than, than I will, but his first day at WFUV was on the third floor of Keating at the time now. Currently, the station is located in the basement of Keating Hall on the campus of Fordham University, but at the time, of course, it was in a much different spot. And he walks to the entrance of FUV, and there's a long hallway on this floor and he sees two guys playing catch, like with baseball mitts and a baseball on his first day at WFUV. And he goes, well, I, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know that we could just play catch in the hallway as part of the job. But that goes to show, Mike, the evolution of the program and the station. And of course, again, Cirillo, someone who's highly respected in that regard, it was just very funny. And it's almost something that you and I that are in this program now, we wouldn't even even think of doing in the general vicinity of of the station yeah I think it it kind of shows about that he was a college kid once he was someone who was walking the halls of Keating he was running into college kids going to the station although in a different place in the same building and even though he was there like we are now he had such a great career he had such a good public relations career starting his own business and I think that's what there is to take away from this episode of Off the Air is that although he was just a student like the rest of us, he also went on to do so many great things like the rest of the WFV alumni that we talk about on this podcast. Certainly. And the one thing that I thought really stood out to me, again, you're going to hear this in the interview. And we talk about all the stuff he's done, like starting his own company, getting Spiro Didis his first gig. He worked with Ryan Rucco, Tony Reale. Mike Yam, Andrew Bogus, who you guys heard on the last episode. I think the biggest one in his career that I found to be truly a monumental turning point was when he brought boxing back to Madison Square Garden when he was working for the Knicks. And he says in the, in the podcast, he goes, why are there no 
boxing names up in the rafters of MSG. We have all these Nick players and the Rangers and eventually Billy Joel would get up there, but there was no boxing. So he was very keen on that. And I think that that goes to show you again, just to reiterate what kind of impact he was looking to make. And he really did change the boxing world in a way with bringing it back to such a venue. And it's kind of run with him ever since. Yeah, and I think that work with the boxing really encapsulates his whole career. Someone who never really stood still and was always looking to further his career and to make changes. You know, he started as a broadcaster at Sports Phone from 1977 to 1978, then moved on to be a production associate for the MLB Productions in 78 to 79. And then from there, a PR director at Yonkers Wasteway for three years. And then the New York Knicks PR, like we talked about, from 1984 to 1995 before moving into a senior vice president's chair from 95 to 97. Someone who continued to work and now celebrating 25 years of Cirillo World. He continued to make advances. And I think what's amazing about this is that bringing boxing back to Madison Square Garden is just one piece of the John Cirillo legacy, his experiences, what he did for the PR world and the sports media world. And I think that's what's great about this interview. I think that's what's great about John Cirillo and all our viewers, all our listeners are really going to come away with, wow, this guy did so much in the time he has spent in the sports media industry. And you're certainly right, Mike. And then I think that's enough of you and I, it's time to get to the, to the meat of this podcast. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, John Cirillo. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Off the Air, our WFUV sports pod, where we catch up with some of the great WFUV alumni. Now, today we are joined by a very special guest, someone who I've known for a very long time. He's currently celebrating 25 years for his sports public relations firm, Cirillo World. He was previously the senior vice president at Madison Square Garden. He was the VP of public relations for the New York Knicks. He was the PR director at Yonkers Raceway, served as a production assistant at Major League Baseball Productions, former Vince Scully Award winner, a former graduate of 1978. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only John Cirillo. John, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me and Mike. Well, listen, for me, it's uh, it's always a thrill and an honor to be on with uh, the WFUV uh, broadcasters. I I feel confident that uh, I'll be saying, I know, I knew those guys went. So good luck to you guys. <laughs> no, we appreciate it. Now you've obviously, you've said that to, you can say that about a number of guys, but I do want to start, grew up in Sheep's Head Bay in Brooklyn, which is also the home of the indomitable Vince Lombardi. And I'm sure he played a big role in you coming to Fordham, but what's it like to be from the same area as him and, I guess, what sort of respect did you have for him, especially when you came to Fordham? You know, even as kids uh, in the first and second grades, um, Vince Lombardi's dad used to go to mass every day. And sometimes he would go to, you know, the student mass and everybody be whispering, you know, there's Vince Lombardi's father. So there was a great excitement about, uh, you know, being from the same town and the, the same church as he was. John, when you look at uh, what made you go to Fordham, what was the main reason why you came to this university? Well, you know, it was WFUV radio. Um, <clears throat> I had a conversation with Bill Mazur, who was one of the 
uh, top sports anchors at Channel 5 in those days when I was deciding on a college and I had it narrowed down uh, to Syracuse, NYU and Fordham. And uh, I called him out of the blue and he was so kind. I spent like 20 minutes on the phone. Here's a high school kid calling a big time broadcaster. And he was so gracious. I'll never forget the conversation. Uh, it ended with go to a school that you could get the reps, get the airtime, get the play-by-play, -play, get the hosting down. And uh, I picked Fordham. Um, in the end, I think it was because the line, Vince Scully went to Fordham. You know, I'm sure you guys uh, making your decision with guys like Mike Breen and Michael Kay and, you know, all the greats that have come out of Fordham since then. But uh, that's how I made the decision. And, um, you know, I'll never regret it. So you mentioned John Vince Scully, of course one of the main reasons why you came to Fordham. What's it almost like thinking that this guy walked these halls, you received the Vince Scully Award, almost like following but, uh, in his I footsteps? Ha I have to correct uh, you that the Scully Award goes to bro broadcasters. And uh, yeah. I've been involved with the Scully Award for all 10 or 11 years uh, as the public uh, relations guy for WFUV. And you know, I'll tell you a great story about Mr. Scully. Uh, and I worked with him on all the awards in terms of setting interviews up with the radio stations uh, like uh, ESPN and Michael Kay. But um, in the first year, he and Osgood, Charles Osgood, uh, received the awards that were named for them. And we were up on a about a three foot riser, you know, to have the photos taken. And um, when we were done with the pictures, Mr. Osgood and Mr. Scully looked at each other and said, uh, like, how are we going to get down from here? And I spread my arms out and gave each, uh, each of the gentlemen an arm. And I said, gentlemen, it would be my pleasure. And uh, I escorted them off the stage. So that's a, that's a great memory of, of Mr. Scully. And uh, Vin also was the comm commencement speaker in 2000. And uh, at that time, I was uh, brought on by Fordham Athletics to be the, um, you know, uh, uh, work uh, as a PR consultant. And I worked closely with Vin uh, on all the interviews. We had everyone from, uh, you know, the New York Times to the Daily News and the Post and a lot of TV cameras there. And, you know, he, he gave such a speech that even talked about um, that we have to you know, the world is kind of spinning out of control and we have to take a pause from all the contraptions and, you know, internet and all of those things. And he really was like a harbinger of, you know, 20 years later, we see how, uh, you know, social media has kind of taken over our lives. But he's a brilliant guy. And, you know, and I think in most of our minds, the greatest baseball broadcaster that, that has ever lived. John, when you think about your experiences at Fordham University, you called, you know, Fordham men's basketball, especially that 1978 upset win over Georgetown, a ranked team at the time. What kind of, what, what was it like calling that game and maybe just calling Fordham basketball while you were here? You know, that was a game, uh, it was an afternoon game. Uh, Georgetown had played the day before. Uh, they played another ranked team and won. I, I don't recall the, the team, but, um, you know, you're just hoping that you, the Rams would compete. You're not thinking about an upset. 
And um, after taking a lead early, uh, we, we had a couple of terrific shooters, Tom Cavanaugh and uh, Billy Lombardi. And uh, Cavanaugh in particular, he was hitting these shots from 30 feet out. Like they would have been three-pointers today. And um, it was just amazing. You know, the obviously we had a pretty full gym because we were playing a great team like Georgetown. And um, I still have uh, I still have the tape. I have to get you guys some of the tapes that uh, you would Love get. Love to hear it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I want to tell you a story about the first day um, at WFUV. We were on the third floor in a long corridor. It went from one end of the uh, hall to the other. And I go in for an interview with uh, Mike Wolchewski, who is better known as King Wally, and he became the voice of the Knicks on their public address uh, later. And um, there was a guy named Jerry Murphy. He, was, he uh, wound up being the traveling secretary for the New York Yankees. And he was having a catch in the, in the WFUV corridor, throwing like 80 miles an hour with another FUV staffer. And I'm just listening to the mitts pop and looking at these guys. I'm saying, this is not what I expected. But, um, you know, it was just a thrill to be at, be at the station then. And, uh, you know, it, it always is to, to come back uh, to Fordham, you know, having taught there for, for 24 years and, you know, getting to know so many of the um, broadcast elite during their younger student days. John, I want to, you mentioned you're an adjunct professor here at Fordham. Obviously, I am a former student of your sports comm class, but you've had a number of incredible names, Ryan Rucco, Mike Yam, Tony Reale, uh, Connell McShane, just to name a few. What's it like to watch them grow into what they've become now? And almost what role did you play in helping them get their professional careers started? Yeah, I, you know what? I, I think teaching one course and having, um, you know, really outstanding broadcasters like that. Uh, the only thing I would say is that I've always encouraged students that don't let anyone tell you that you can't do that. Just believe in yourself, chase your dreams. You know, the old story of Mike Green and Mike Kay talking in the cafeteria about uh, could you imagine if I became the voice of the Knicks and Kay would respond to Breen? Could you imagine if I became the voice of the Yankees? And look, look what's happened. Like if people gave up, they, there wouldn't be the stars uh, that have the great jobs now. Someone else would have them. So like, take a chance, go for it. Um, you know, the, the guy that I would say that I helped the most was Spiro Didis because you know, I'm going to tell one quick Spiro story. Father O'Hare was the president at the time. And um, Michael Kay calls Father O'Hare and he says, what's going on at Fordham uh, at WFUV? You've hired professional DJs, but now you're hiring professional announcers. Who is this guy, Spiro Didis? He's like a mercenary coming in to do the games. You need to train Fordham kids to become great broadcasters. And he's railing, and uh, Father O'Hare says, Michael, just hold on. Uh, Spiro is a student. And that, that's how good Spiro was. And uh, there was one point that I just said, Spiro, you know what? I, I would love to represent you. Uh, you know, I have a lot of contact in the industry. And um, 
got him his first on-air job uh, doing an XFL sideline reports. Um, that moved into uh, Yes Network hiring him as the first uh, backup that was 24 years old, backing up Iron Eagle, and then uh, went on to get the um, Lakers job and uh, NFL Network. And, uh, you know, he actually did um, CBS NCAA uh, his first or second year out of Fordham. So Spiro and I uh, have remained really good friends, and we you know, stay in touch texting and complaining about different things that are going on in the world these days. But uh, he's a great guy. And, you know, it, it's always, it's a wonderful thing to watch uh, people that you taught in the classroom or, you know, watch that WFUV as young men and women and, you know, to watch this success. So that, that's the very rewarding part of uh, about being a professor. Yeah, you talked about all the great WFV alumni you've been able to teach and what it's like being a professor, but what was it specifically like being able to teach at the same school that you went to? You know, I don't know that I would have um, accepted a opportunity to teach. You know, it was, a, it was a busy time that I was next. I was actually senior VP at the Garden. Um, no, I was the Knicks PR guy, and I was asked to speak at a young alumni event uh, for Fordham uh, recent graduates. And, um, you know, I spoke for about 15 minutes and did a long Q&A about getting into the industry. And um, when the session was over, a um, pepper gray-haired guy about five foot eight comes running up to the front of the room and said, do you teach? You must be a teacher. You have to teach. And uh, it was Dr. Ron Jacobson, who's still at Fordham uh, in, in various administrative roles. And uh, he said, let's have lunch. We'll come up with 14 week class. And we did that. And the following um, uh, it was the day after Labor Day that I started uh, in 1997 teaching at Fordham and then had the, you know, 24-year run since then. So, so you know, teaching at your alma mater um, and starting at, you know, a relatively young age at the top of your game, um, sometimes I've thought about, like, wouldn't it have been great if I just went into teaching and was a, you know, full-time professor, but... Um, you know, the relationships that you establish in the sports business and, you know, broadcasting and with sports writers uh, then wouldn't be there. So, you know, I have no regrets. So, John, you mentioned while you were getting into teaching, you were the Knicks, uh, Knicks PR guy. Now, one of your major accomplishments, more than a, than a few, obviously, but one I want to highlight is you bringing boxing back to the Garden in 1995. What was that process like getting that? event back because it's just such a pull especially at madison square garden how was that process who did you have to go through is there anything that i guess you would have done differently maybe in that in that time or is there anything you can tell us about that yeah you know it it was um i was at a nick game sitting next to dave checkets and we had gotten um a directive from the new owners itt and cable vision were co-owners we we need new business at the garden and uh, it was actually uh, after a, a John Starks dunk 
and the crowd is going nuts. And I, I don't know why, but I started looking around at the banners that were hanging and all the banners were Nixon Rangers, retired numbers and championships. And I, I said, Dave, you know what? There are no boxing banners up there. We don't have boxing. And the reality is that the garden was like the face of boxing back in the day. I said, let's bring boxing back. There are only five major promoters. There are 10 boxers that, you know, people recognize, let's go for it. And um, Dave asked me, well, who's gonna do it? And I said, I would, I would love to handle that. Uh, I was a big boxing fan at the time. And we, na we navigated through it by going to HBO, which was the, you know, signature television network of boxing, um, identifying the fighters like Oscar De La Hoya and Roy Jones Jr. and, you know, Lennox Lewis. And in the, in the span of um, 12 months, we, we had uh, six fight nights. Uh, we, we had a, we were in the black for a million dollars, which, you know, when you start a new business, even though you're Madison Square Garden and, you know, have the necessary funds to uh, take a shot at it, I, you know, it was a great achievement. And uh, it really was what enabled me to start Cirillo World because we were, you know, a boxing PR firm initially. Um, a lot of the promoters don't have public relations people on staff, so they bring outsiders, uh, outside companies to handle it. And people like Bob Arum, when he had Oscar Del Hoya in his heyday, and uh, Lou DiBella when he announced his company, Cedric Kushner, Dino Duva. So we were handling, you know, many major fights uh, uh, early in the company's history. So yeah, you talked uh, about Cirilla World, you know, which you started in 1997, making the transition from Nick's PR to that. What, what was that like for you? You know, the, the hardest part of it was that, um, you know, I was in no way burnt out, but I made a decision that I wanted to have a little more control over my life. And I remember some of the days at the garden, it'd be nine o'clock at night and I'm, you know, getting out of the office and someone would you know, pull me on the side and say, say they wanted to talk about something. They say, look, I've been here since nine o'clock this morning. Like, let's schedule a meeting tomorrow, you know? So uh, the, the walls got a little old, even though it was, is the, was the garden. And I knew I had some opportunities with, um, with boxing and I was committed to do the teaching. So I, I made the decision and, um, you know, going back to your question, I, I think having a, a small staff was the hardest thing about it. You know, you might be, you weren't accustomed uh, to, to faxing information to people, you had someone else to handle that. And really it was me and an intern when I, when I started, because I didn't want to make the investment of, um, you know, hiring a staff and not having the clients to, to pay the staff. So and, you know, look, you know, I, I think the other thing is that w when you're part of a team like the Knicks or part of a, a management team like Madison Square Garden, 
and now you have a firm and you're being brought in to, to publicize, um, you're kind of like a mercenary. You know, people, people forget about you. You may, you may not get invited to that Christmas party, you know. Uh, you know, never feeling bad about it, but it, it was just a new, uh, a new lifestyle. I, I, I also thought, well, you know, now I have complete control over my life. And, you know, you never have control over your life when you have clients that, you know, have specific needs that you want to make sure you fulfill, you fulfill them. So, John, obviously, the world of sports has changed, especially with all of the new technology. And you talked, you said faxing and things that I, I really, Mike and I, were not familiar with at all. Um, how has that helped your business, I guess, grow its outreach with the presence of social media, things getting out there in, 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 the, in the snap of a finger or a drop of a hat? How has that helped the PR business and how has that helped Cirilla yeah. World? You know, one of, one of the things that um, I had polled about 20 PR people, you know, this may have been eight years ago, um, ages 25 through 60. And I asked, do you use social media to reach out to the media about a story that you have? And to a man and woman, they all said, absolutely not. Like, you don't use social media to do that. And that, that has changed. Like, you have direct messaging going on on Facebook and uh, Instagram. And, you know, you could tag a writer or a broadcaster about a, a story that you're working on. And, you know, if, if they have a relationship with you, and maybe even if they don't, if they if they like the story that you're pitching, uh, they're they're going to respond to that. Believe it or not, one of one of the greatest things about uh, just the new way we we approach uh, life is um, is using text messages to contact the media. Like that was that was totally unheard of. You would either even though people had cell phones, you would just either call them up or send an email. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, I, I told the story to my class that uh, Bruce Beck, one day, we were just having a conversation and he said, you know, Tom Coughlin's the greatest. When I need to set up a time for an interview, I just send him a text message. And I thought to myself, well, if he's texting Tom Coughlin, then I might as well text him. And, um, you know, I, I just had a, a text conversation with Mike Vaccaro of the Post um, Yesterday, when, when Bob Lanier passed away, it was a great uh, St. Bonaventure uh, product who went on to, you know, greatness in the NBA. And we, you know, went back and forth. So I think that, you know, you're even texting family members, uh, happy birthday. So, um, you know, using text messages has been a, a great way to communicate. So yeah, we talked about how you were the Knicks PR um, up until 1997, starting in 1984. How has the evolution of technology and social media changed the PR business from when you worked at the Knicks to now? I, I think it used to be a, if a player made a mistake, it would be having a, in, a, in a conversation that he was having with the media person. Today, a player can tweet something out that you know, is ridiculous or um, was the wrong way to handle something. And now you have, <clears throat> you have to do the damage control on, on that social media piece that, you know, didn't exist 
um, you know, 20 years ago. So John, you also, I mean, go, going back to Mike's point with the mistakes that players can make and tweeting, there was a quote I remember in our class that you had about from Pat Riley and it was him asking you how long the story was going to be when there is a, a mess up. Now, one of those stories was when Charles Oakley attacked a media member during practice one day. What is it like dealing with something like that? It, it was actually uh, John Starks, and you know he or John he cha- Starks, yes. He yes. chased the he chased the writer who um, interviewed his mom and his grandmother, and he, you know, he he thought that was off limits, which you know it may it may have been off limits, but um, it's kind of mishandled by uh, the PR person at the time. I had since gone on to you know the senior VP position at the Garden. But, um, you know, R- Riley would say, is it a one-day story or a two-day story? And we would always try to um, figure out a way to make it a one-day story. You mentioned, you know, that story from your time with the Knicks. What other stories can you think about? Is there a great experience you had while working at the Knicks? Those are some really good years. You went out of finals run. You also had Bernard King, some really good years there. What's one really good experience you had as Knicks PR during those times? You know, I remember um, Kenny Walker, uh, I'll tell you too, Kenny Walker was was a great dunker, you know, and he would do some things in practice that uh, were phenomenal. So um, the Nick players, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly who they went to, but the NBA got the, we got the NBA's attention. You know, Kenny wasn't like a wild star, like a Jordan or a Dominique, but he was invited to the slam dunk championship. Well, in the interim, the the week of the slam dunk, Kenny's dad passed away. And, um, you know, he was going to pull out. And his mother said, you know what, your your father would have wanted you to compete in this. Like, this is really an important uh, opportunity in your life. Well, the long story short is that Kenny Walker won the slam dunk championship and then had to race to the airport right after that um, to make his father's funeral. And, and it was just, you know, it, it, it was larger than life. It, it was a story that, you know, it would bring you to tears if you were there with, um, with Kenny rushing him to the airport after, you know, the, the glowing victory in that slam dunk was just a special one. Um, I, I was the PR guy. I was assigned um, to the first three-point uh, shooting contest at the NBA All-Star Game. So what the league would do, Brian McIntyre, great PR guy, he would assign each person an event. You might get the... Uh, Western All-Stars practice, or um, I got the slam dunk the first year. And uh, <clears throat> we're in the locker room, and all, all the players are there except one guy. The locker's empty, and it's Larry Bird. And people will say, well, where's Bird? He walks in, it totally planned this thing, and says uh, to the other six participants hey ladies who's going to finish second 
And he had these guys, he had his, you know, opponents so psyched out. He, dra- he drained every three. Every three. He won the first one, like, by unanimous decision. Uh, you know, I, I think I think during the Riley years, I mean, just working with, you know, in my mind, the greatest uh, basketball coach in history and, you know, a top 50 player like Patrick Ewing, um, you know, that that's an opportunity that not, not a lot of people uh, have in, in their careers. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So you mentioned the 90s Knicks. There was another 90s cultural icon, the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. Now, you were the PR guy for most of that Knicks 90s run, of course, and Michael Jordan essentially building a dynasty uh, on the Knicks' head. Every time that the Bulls and company would come to town, what was the planning for the PR? How did you guys handle the, the mob of just people that were looking, especially with Jordan in town, just trying to get to him? How did you guys handle any of that? Yeah, you, you know, I, I mean, I think um, I think the damage control stuff uh, is much more overwhelming than having to accommodate, you know, the media. I mean, you just try to do your best to, you know, give the elite media like a Dave Anderson, who was a columnist with, with the Times, you know, the, the best seats that you can. Uh you know, there's an upper press box at the garden. So it, w- it was never an issue of how many uh, seats you had. It was an issue of uh, who's going to sit where. Um, Jordan was, was amazing. Um, you know, when I used to put the seating cards down, maybe five o'clock for an eight o'clock game, he was always the first player there. He, he would take a cab from the hotel and, uh, you know, shoot three-pointers with a ball boy, shoot free throws with a ball boy. So I, I always say that, and, and the great players are all like that. Um, no, no one's a natural. They become a natural because of the, their hard work. And, and that was Jordan. I mean, Jordan was, uh, you know, I know, I know how great LeBron is and how great Kobe was. I don't think anybody's close to Jordan. And, you know, that could be from the era that I'm coming from, but I, I think a lot of people um, might be in agreement with that too. Now, taking it back a little in time to your years in around college, near the end of your um, time at Fordham, what was it like around sports phone that one year you were there and the energy around it really was a huge time in sports, the ability to, you know, like call that number and get those updates. What was that like the year you worked there? Yeah. You know, you, you have to remember that um, there were no all sports radio stations that were going 24 hours. Uh, th- there was no internet uh, to check on, on a score. So the, the way, you know, a lot of people say, well, Gamblers use sports phone. They wanted to see how their team was doing. But, you know, that that wasn't only the case. The case was that um, crazy sports fans wanted to know, you know, um, that West Coast game that, you know, the Dodgers may have been playing the Giants and it was a big game. And um, that that was the way. You know, New Yorkers and and I guess in the other markets too got their information. So, 
Um, if big news broke, there, there were, you know, very fast updates. One, I was going to, actually went to the uh, Preakness Stakes, second jewel of the Triple Crown, was able to get a credential through WFUV and Sports Phone. And um, I called Seattle Slews. Obviously, wasn't over the public address announcers uh, booth or or the uh, or national television. But I, I called Seattle Slews Preakness win. You know, sent it to Sports Phone, and they played it as the lead. You know, story of the day when when Slew won the uh, Preakness second jewel of the Triple Crown. So, so John, a, you bring up, yeah. You bring up all of these moments. I mean, Michael mentioned it earlier with Fordham and Georgetown, with Tom Penders, Seattle Slew and the horse racing. Of all of the sports broadcasting moments that you've had, which one was your favorite and why? My favorite on WFUV. I I would say, you know, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you three uh, rankings. That Georgetown win, like, you know, Fordham was in a in a much worse position than than it is now in terms of the basketball program. Um, Dick Stewart was named the head coach. He was let go, you know, mid to late season. Tracy Trapuca took over for him. So, so that that was like an upset for the agents. Um, I would say number two was having the opportunity to call the first women's game on WFUV, and that was during an era that Ann Gregory was one of the great pioneers and the greatest player, uh, you know, in Fordham women's hoops history. And that, that's saying a lot. And uh, Marianne Bellotti and Mary Hayes, there were some great players there. And uh, Jim Donahue and, uh, was my co-sports director. Uh, we made the decision, we have, we have to get, you know, the women's games on. This was back in 1977. So, so, you know, that was, it was pre, um, pre title nine. So we had a little bit of foresight there, you know, young 20 year olds. And then, you know, the, the third would be, um, the baseball team won the, the, uh, Met championship and then made it to, you know, an NC, uh, AA regional playoff. And, uh, on that team, uh, included Freddie Opper, who was, a you know, is a big bopper and, he hit a home run um, onto the Rose Hill gym that won a game in a walk-off. And right before the pitch, I said, the Rams are hoping that Freddie will give it a ride. And he, he, he hit it onto the roof. So that, that was a big thrill. And those guys uh, and, and the women's team, they, they've remained close friends. You know, Bobby Cole was, was uh, the, the ace reliever and, um, Actually, Jim O'Connell, Ock, who, who has passed away, but he was the SID for that year. And he, he formed a golf tournament called the Froggy Open. And that's a, a long story we'll save for another day. But um, that was like a, an annual reunion for the, for the baseball uh, team and the women's basketball team from, from, the, uh, from the late 70s. And it's still, uh, it's still going on. And talking about some of those years after college, you worked at the Yonkers Raceway and WRTV Parlay, PR director there, and you worked under Tim Rooney of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Rooney family. What mm -hmm. was that like working under him? And then what are some yep. of your experiences you had just working at that Yonkers Raceway? 
Well, you know, you know, Tim Rooney was a, a great mentor. Um, you know, ha having an opportunity to work under someone, um, so, someone that you would say, he gets it, he gets it. And, um, you know, we did things like uh, golf outings at Wingfoot and, you know, Yonkers trot parties uh, at, at the water club. Um, Tim and I had a, um, we were like pen pals during my Fordham days. And I would send him letters, you know, and so, some of them were, you know, almost um, too brash. And I, I wasn't really a brash kid, but um, they, they had John Dockery, who, who um, you guys may know was a former Steelers player uh, that went into broadcasting and he did mostly football, but because of the relationship, you know, that Tim had with the Steelers, when uh, Spencer Ross would, would miss a broadcast, he would bring John Dockery in. And I wrote a letter telling him that, um, you know, I could do a better job than John Dockery and you should have someone who's a racing expert. And I got a very polite letter like, kid, you know what? <laughs> we really like John Dockery, but I'm not thinking, well, he was a stealer, you know? Anyway, fast forward. You know, a few years later, I get the PR job. And uh, when Spencer Ross, you know, I, I love when the Jets, um, when the Jets had a road game because Spencer would have to miss the Saturday show to get to the uh, visiting city uh, the, the day before. And I, I must have done about 20 shows. So, you know, here I was, I would, I would say, you know, 24 years old hosting on New York TV. And, um, you know, thought maybe the broadcast career would continue, but then I got the opportunity with the Knicks and, uh, you know, th there was no turning back from that. And it was, it was Yogi's uh, fork in the road and I took it and, and went into uh, public relations. But, um, you know, I'm thinking back that, uh, you know, getting to meet Art Rooney, the, the chief, the chairman of the Steelers who would come to the big races. And, you know, th this was a guy that, you know, he cared more about every man than some million dollar owner. After the press conferences, he would, um, and, I, and I was lucky enough to um, be close to the track photographer, Mike Cipriani, who, who knew Mr. Rooney well. And we would go visit with the electricians and the, you know, the maintenance guys and the hot dog workers. And he'd be handing out cigars to everyone and, and you know, this is the way to treat people. So, you know, it was, it was a very, very good lesson that uh, no matter what your status, that, um, you know, you should care about the, the guy changing the light bulbs or, you know, fixing the steam pipes as, as much as you should, you know, the president of the company. You mentioned the cigars. And of course, your nickname in the PR world is Johnny Cigar PR. Is that where that came from? Or is there a different story? To that? No, no. Um, you know, I, I did get to smoke a cigar, too, with, with Mr. Rooney, but, um, you know, 20 years ago, you could smoke at a bar or restaurant. It, it was a different world before the, you know, the laws changed. And there was a place called Elaine's on Second uh, Avenue. And that was a place that, you know, the scribes would go to, you know, Bob Raceman, um, Steve Jacobson from Newsday, there would be a slew of celebrity, uh, celebrity media, but also 
celebrities went there. Peter Falk went there. And um, I'll, I'll tell you Peter Falk's story in a, in a second. But I would light up a cigar, you know, not near a table where people were having dinner, but, you know, off in the corner. And Raceman dubbed me Johnny Cigar. So, so when I opened the company, rather than have like, uh, you know, John at Cirilla World, I did Johnny Cigar PR. And, and that's been my email, you know, for 25 years. Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, the P Peter Fox story. Peter was a huge Nick fan. And, you know, for those unfamiliar, um, he played Columbo in, in that great old television series. And um, he, he'd come to a lot of Nick games and he would kind of, you know, crawl around the corner near the wall and, you know, watch uh, John McLeod or Riley doing their post-game interviews before there was a post-game, you know, uh, press conference set up. And about three years after I left and started Cirilla World, I get a phone call pick up the phone, John Cirillo. And on the other end, the question is, you know, I've been meaning to ask you for three years, why did Riley leave Starks in that game? And it was Peter Falk uh, questioning Riley's move, you know, for sticking with John Starks instead of bringing Rolando Blackman in, in, in that um, you know, dismal game that he had in the NBA Finals. So, you know, I, I think the celebrities um, enjoyed the fact that I uh, didn't treat them like celebrities, you know, that I understood who they were. But, you know, if we can't get you tickets for this game, we'll have to do the next game. Um, <clears throat> Matt Dillon, who uh, is one of Paul Dillon's sons, the great uh, late golf coach at Fordham, um, you know, I went to Paul's wake and caught up with Matt and, uh, and Kevin Dillon. And, you know, we, we had a lot of great memories to talk about. Yeah. You, you talked about Cirillo world and you've worked with so many, you know, big names, big, um, you know, events, uh, Gary Carter, Bob Costas, was there a favorite person to work with that Cirillo world or maybe a certain event you had to, um, help manage? You know, I, uh, we've been handling the Thurman Munson Award uh, for about 22 years now. <clears throat> and it's a great charity. Uh, it's called AHRC New York City Foundation, which uh, uh, assists adults and, and kids with disabilities. And, um, you know, being able to bring in great athletes, everyone from Mariano Rivera to Labor Torres, uh, you know, at that, I think that's my, my signature in, in, the, in the PR world has been, you know, having a client that is, is a tremendous charity that helps people. Um, you know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to give favorites. I, I could spend, you know, another half an hour talking about them, but, you know, quickly, uh, um, Ron Swoboda uh, was my favorite Met growing up. And, um, you know, to get to know him and work on, on his book and a memorabilia project with him. And I, I called Rocky last week or two weeks ago. You know, we just spent an hour 
on the phone talking about the state of baseball and the Mets and the Yankees. And, you know, just listening to him, this guy is so smart. He goes to the uh, Museum of Modern Art and, you know, can talk politics with the best of them. Um, Daryl Strawberry brought me in to handle his book. Uh, but when, when Costas uh, launched his HBO show, uh, you know, many years at NBC, but he also had an uh, HBO uh, center stage type of show. And by the way, I feel like I'm on center stage with you guys. <laughs> uh, you know, Bob brought me in to do some personal PR and, you know, and that was great. But uh, I, I would say, you know, that and, you know, maybe the, the Munson dinner. And then um, Tim Rooney brought us back when they opened Empire City Casino. So it was like a, a reunion, you know, having started my PR career at Yonkers and then, you know, going back there. Um, I, I'll tell you the Gary Carter story real quickly. I, I get a phone call the day they're going to announce the Hall of Fame um, selections for, for the year that Gary went in. And uh, it, was, it was a guy named Mead Shasky, who, <clears throat> who was like Gary's marketing guy. And he said, uh, Gary asked me to call you. Uh, he wants you to be his PR guy if he gets in from today until the induction. And that's what happened. And uh, I was on you know, a small bus with the only person besides Gary's family were me, Chesky and I. And just to you know, be the fly on the wall with, with that group was a real special, uh, real special time for me too. John, one more question. You obviously have been around Fordham of course, forever. And you, again, teaching, it's kept you in the loop. Uh, the university has undergone or gone under a lot of changes between a new president coming in, new athletic director, new coaches here and there, and FUV has even evolved in its own right. Mm -hmm. What's it like for you to watch the growth of Fordham from when you first came to where the school is now? Yeah, you, you know, I... You know, I'm going to start with Kyle Neptune. I, I thought that was a great <laughs> pick by Eddie, Eddie Cull. And um, w when I got the email that he, he was stepping down, I'm saying, like, what in the world is going on? And then I connected the dots that, you know, Jay Wright was, was retiring. Like, what, what are the odds of Jay Wright retiring <laughs> one year after Kyle Neptune came into Fordham? Um, you know, I worked with Frank McLaughlin. Frank was an absolutely outstanding AD. Uh, even though, you know, the basketball program has had uh, ups and downs and, and mostly downs, Frank was, was great at, you know, getting more money for, for head coaching positions. When Bob Hill came in, it sort of, even though uh, it didn't turn out great at, at the end, it took Fordham's salary to a completely different level. Um, when you look at, you know, the hires like Stephanie Gately and, uh, and others, you know, her in particular, though, uh, you know, great judge of, of coaching and, and people. Um, you know, I've always felt that one of the biggest drawbacks for Fordham being in a conference like the Atlantic 10 was, was our facility. Um, it's really hard to recruit. I was on a, on a bus during my senior year and uh, a player named Paul Williams were, were driving up 
to the Allen Fieldhouse in Lawrence, Kansas. And he's shaking his head and saying, that's a field house. Now, this is 1978. You're talking like 40 years ago. We, we have the same gym. So, so it's an obstacle. I, you know, it looked like uh, Kyle was on the, on the right track in terms of, you know, bringing the right players in. And, you know, even back to Tom Pecora, who, you know, got some really solid players. Uh, you're always hopeful. You know, we're, we're in a tough conference with, with not the greatest facility. Uh, Eddie Coe's one of the brightest guys I've uh, ever dealt with on a, on a college athletics level. So, um, you know, knock on wood, hopefully, hopefully we're in the right direction. Well, John, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with Michael and I. It's been, it's been a pleasure, and I hope to see you again soon. It's been my pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Well, wow, that was a really fun and jam-packed episode. All the stories from John Cirillo, all the experiences that he had. And it really was, we were very lucky, Mike, to have conducted this interview with him. Yeah, and I know we talked about some of the parts in the top half of the episode. But just looking back on the interview as a whole, I think we just learned so much about John Cirillo. Not only time at Fordham, but what he did throughout his years at Madison square garden with the Knicks bringing back boxing, like we mentioned at the top and throughout the entire um, interview and episode, he, he just did so much in his time. And you see it in Cirilla world, the people he's worked with that he talked about, he's done so much in his time in the sports media industry. And it was a joy to be a part of the interview and episode. And I think the same goes for all the listeners and viewers. So before we wrap up here really quickly, we should share our favorite uh, stories from Mr. Cirillo. I thought mine was probably when he got to call, and I'm a little biased towards this, when he was able to call the Fordham basketball upset against Georgetown, and Georgetown was in their prime, might I add. I thought that was my favorite one. I'm very into that sort of stuff. And to see a tiny school like Fordham take down a big giant like Georgetown, it, it really makes you feel proud to, to be a Ram. You know, it's funny you said that one, uh, Thomas, because I was thinking in my head, you know, that was one of my favorite parts of the interview. But I also got to go with this time at the Yonkers Raceway, you know, mm. working under the Rooney family and, you know, how, you know, nicely he talked about them, you know, how professional they were. And as a Steelers fan myself, it was, you know, really fun and, um, you know, it really nice to hear him talk about the Rooney family and the great experiences he had at the Yonkers Raceway. Um, it's insane how we can pick out two small parts of the interview and the episode. And there are really so many more that doesn't do it justice, but, uh, a tremendous time with John Cirillo and a great episode. Certainly. And I just want to give a quick thank you to John Cirillo for joining us for this episode of off the air. Our sports director at FEV, of course, is Bobby Chaffordini. Our sports manager is Ryan Gregware for Michael Calamari. I'm Thomas Aiello saying so long. Off the Air is a production of WFUV Sports.